Good evening. Uh, welcome to Twist this week in sustainability. I'm Jamie Ferguson uh, in Emory, Virginia, uh, chemistry professor at Emory and Henry College, and I'm here with my co-host Felicia Etzcorn. Uh, hi, Felicia Etzcorn from Blacksburg, Virginia, and it is a sunny 40 degree day with six inches of snow that just fell this morning. Uh, I'm at Virginia Tech and I teach green chemistry. And I believe it's February 7th. And with us today is Joel Tickner up in Massachusetts. Joel's a professor of environmental health at UMass Lowell, University of Massachusetts Lowell, and is also the executive director of the Green Chemistry and Commerce Council, GC3. It's a 130 member business network focused on accelerating the development, commercialization, and scale of safer, more sustainable chemicals and products. And Felicia and I have come across GC3 at a green chemistry and engineering conference before. You guys really are putting the research and the businesses together in the same room, as I understand it, to have people learn about green chemistry that they can actually adopt for their businesses. So Joel is here today to talk to us about this field called chemical alternatives assessment and uh, how it kind of interfaces with what Felicia and I do talk a lot about, the field of green chemistry. So Joel, you wanna take it away? Sure, great. Thank you for having me here today. You know, I, I work in these two spheres of alternatives assessment and green chemistry. And I think they, the bottom line or the goal here is to drive safer, more sustainable chemicals. And the way I've seen this sort of strategically is to achieve this goal of safe, sustainable chemicals, we need to fundamentally transform our science, fundamentally transform policy, and fundamentally transform markets. And by managing or affecting these three transformations, we can actually drive solutions to the problem chemicals we manufacture, use, and dispose of today. So the whole goal here of the work we've done over the last 15 to 20 years is really increase the supply of safer chemicals. Mm -hmm. So chemical alternatives assessment, I had never heard that term until I read your review about the area uh, in green chemistry letters and reviews and an article back in December called the, the nexus between alternatives assessment and green chemistry supporting the development and adoption of safer chemicals. So for people who haven't heard of alternatives assessment, do you mind if I just read the, the definition that you have given for it? Absolutely. Yep. So the, the National Research Council of, of our country decided to, to put out a framework in 2014 to kind of define this area and start a professional society to support the work. So they, they define alternatives assessment as a process for identifying, comparing, and selecting safer alternatives to chemicals of concern on the basis of their hazards, comparative exposure, performance, and economic viability. So can you talk about how the goals of uh, chemical alternatives assessment are a little different from, say, what a green chemistry-minded person would be thinking about? Yeah, I think in the end, they're actually very parallel goals, right? That's why we call this article the nexus between green chemistry and alternatives assessment, because we had seen some actual critiques of alternative assessment saying it, it only looks at what's available today and not what needs to be designed in the future. And that's actually not correct. Um, the National Academy framework uh, has 
a, an off-ramp for green chemistry where there aren't better alternatives. And that's in a lot of cases, we need to design those alternatives. The difference is the timeframes for green chemistry versus alternatives assessment are very different, right? A, a, the regulatory timeframe of acting to remove a chemical concern is often a couple of years, a year, maybe even six months. Well, green chemistry doesn't work that fast. Design doesn't work that fast. We're talking a minimum of three to five, if not eight to 10 years to get a new chemical designed, piloted, manufactured and scaled, right? So the timeframes are very different. But let me take a step back here. You know, why alternatives assessment? Well, I'm, I'm trained as a health scientist. So my training is essentially to figure out how bad everything is. Um, I study chemicals. Much of my early career was studying the, the health effects of chemicals of concern. Um, for example, looking at chlorinated solvents or looking at plasticizers, phthalates. I spent, you know, spent literally 10 years studying the health effects of phthalates and writing reports about their risks and the need for better alternatives. And the problem is, as we've seen in the climate change debates, is that leads to never ending debate about how bad it is. You know, take for example, trichloroethylene, um, solvent we've known since the early 1970s as a potentially carcinogenic chemical. Well, that chemical, yeah, the EPA just finished their risk assessment on trichloroethylene about three years ago, after 30 years. And that risk assessment didn't tell us a lot more than we knew 30 years ago, other than here's how it actually causes cancer, um, similar to smoking, right? We, we knew tobacco exposure caused cancer back in the 1950s. We didn't know the mechanisms or the exact um, biological pathways until the 80s about. So the way I'm trained is to figure that out. But we could circumvent a lot of that by focusing on better alternatives. We don't need perfect evidence about how dangerous it is to identify and evaluate whether there's an alternative that can meet that chemical function, but without the toxicity. And so I've been working in this field of alternatives assessment for 20 years, really thinking about that. And that's the foundation of pollution prevention as well. So let me give you an example in Massachusetts. We started looking at trichloroethylene in the 1990s and evaluating alternatives. We knew it was dangerous. We knew that it was showing up in hazardous waste sites. So you take Woburn, Massachusetts, you know, the, the hazardous waste site that was the focus of the movie, A Civil Action, that had trichloroethylene in it. We knew it was the most mm -hmm. common chemical in hazardous waste sites. So what did we do? We tried to understand how and where it was being used in Massachusetts in degreasing operations and metal finishing. We looked at what alternatives there were to achieve that function of degreasing metal parts. And then we evaluated alternatives for companies looking at aqueous solutions and ultrasonic solutions on their own metal parts. And we found better alternatives. And we were able to reduce TCE use and manufacturing in Massachusetts by 90% without a single risk assessment because we focused on the solutions. It's a win-win for everyone. What's the solution? We're all about solutions. So what's the answer? Oh, yeah. What can you tell us about the chemistry? Oh, the solution for trichloroethylene, there's a lot of them. I mean, there's numerous aqueous-based solvents, ultrasonic cleaning. Um, you can change the production process so that you're not actually using oils to cut metal anymore, but using water instead of oil. And that eliminates the need for the solvent altogether. So alternative assessment starts with that chemical function, right? And we identify that chemical function. And one of the first parts is to understand, do we need that function? 
For example, you could take perfluorinated water repellents. For example, do I need water repellency in my gym shorts? Well, maybe I don't. And if I do, what level of performance do I need? And if I need that level of performance, what are the alternatives that are available to meet that level of performance that I need? And what are their trade-offs? Because that's at its core, alternatives assessment is really about opportunity and it's a powerful motivator for change. And it's simple, right? Identify a wide range of alternatives, including not using that chemical in the first place, evaluate the pros of the chemicals, evaluate the cons of the alternatives, and then put those in a matrix and make a decision. It's fairly simple but we're not trained in, in my training. I'm not trained to think about alternatives. You know, and at the same time, chemists aren't generally trained to think about toxicity and the health impacts of what they're making. So you put those two skill sets together and you have a powerful set of skills to drive positive change. So Joel, I'm curious, when you say we found a solution to trichloroethylene, what was the organization? Yeah. And how was that research launched? I mean, I love reading about you know, your work, but I'm curious, like, how does it get funded? What is the structure? I know that GC3 has membership dues. Yeah, I can go through that. So the we in that case, and I, I it's the proverbial we, is a center I co-direct. So the Massachusetts Toxic Use Reduction Institute, or TORI, was established at UMass Lowell in 1989 as part of a, a piece of legislation that was passed in Massachusetts called the Toxic Use Reduction Act. And the Toxic Use Reduction Act requires manufacturing firms using certain amounts of toxic chemicals to every year, understand how they're using that chemical and the throughput of that chemical, essentially materials accounting, understand what we're using in the state, how it's being used. And then every two years, they have to do a plan to evaluate their chemicals and then identify and evaluate alternatives that would reduce their toxic use or their toxic throughput per unit of product. And they pay a fee on those chemicals that funds the regulatory program at our Department of, of Environmental Protection, a voluntary engineering program that the state hosts uh, that can help firms to manage their chemicals better, and then a research and education institute at UMass Lowell called the Toxic Use Reduction Suit. So we've been funded now for 30 years based on a fee on chemicals that generates about three to $5 million a year and the Institute gets about- Within Massachusetts? Just Massachusetts. So it's only manufacturing in Massachusetts, but it is an incredible global model for how do you stimulate innovation, right? So you think about, there's two sort of key foundational elements of driving innovation. One is willingness. Well, regulation provides willingness or market forces provide willingness and capacity. Well, you know, if you think about small and medium-sized firms in Massachusetts, you know, often, you know, the production managers, the owner's son or daughter um, is the health and safety director. They don't know about alternatives. They rely on their suppliers to provide any information on the chemistries they're using. So the Institute can actually give that capacity. It can fund research on alternatives. It can evaluate alternatives. And then that helps industry to do a better job in adopting better solutions. And certainly we've seen the impacts because we actually have measurable data on chemical throughput in Massachusetts. We can measure the implications of the law, which are about a 40% reduction in chemicals use in Massachusetts, a 60 something percent reduction in chemical waste and like a 90% reduction in chemical emissions, all saving industry money. But again, 
focused on solutions, not figuring out how bad those chemicals are, but figuring out what we can do to actually reduce their use and their emissions per unit of product. So that's another tie or connection to green chemistry is that waste reduction component. So green chemistry is not just about toxicity and pollution control. It's also about waste reduction and efficiency. So that's, that's really cool that it works out that way. Yeah, it's, it's a valuable program. And of course, we have pharma companies in Massachusetts that are working on some of those efforts to reduce their e-factor because we know it, you know, pharma industry generates a lot of waste per unit of output. And, you know, every time you can reduce that or decrease a synthesis step, that that has a benefit. So it's not necessarily the work that we do at the Institute, though we do fund green chemistry research. We funded research, for example, on alternatives to methylene chloride in several applications, alternatives to alkaphenol ethoxylates, you know, in certain applications, alternatives to chlorinated solvents in various applications. So we fund research, but we also do evaluation and testing as well at the Institute and training. So chemical alternatives assessment is a kind of global community at this point. Am I right? Yeah. When you have a a conference, people are kind of, it's still a a fairly young field. Yeah, it's very young. It's an interdisciplinary field. So it's young. You know, we decided to form a professional society because there was no society that really encapsulated all of these scientific elements or disciplines in alternatives assessment, ranging from, you know, chemistry to toxicology to industrial hygiene or exposure assessment to economics to engineering. And we felt that, yeah, we needed to create that. I mean, there are societies we collaborate with, like the Society for Toxicology or the CTEC, which is a Society for Environmental Chemistry and Toxicology. Obviously, we collaborate with the, the Green Chemistry Institute. So all of them are are important, but there was no one home for this field. So that's why we created the A4, the Association for the Advancement of Alternatives Assessment. We're a very small and tight-knit group at this point, a small society of you know, under 100 people, but uh, they're dedicated people who see the value in this field. The other thing is that the field ranges from academics to government to industry to nonprofit. So it's a very practice-oriented and pragmatic field that it is really about getting stuff done, right? Because, you know, you take the National Academy framework and the reason for the National Academy framework, this field of risk assessment, which is the evaluation of how risky or how hazardous a chemical is, was solidified by a 1983 book of the Academy called the Red Book on Risk Assessment. And we felt that there was a need for the book on alternatives assessment. So that's where this National Academy report came out. Now we've got a a solid field and then we need to figure out, well, how do we integrate these sorts of this thinking about alternatives into policy, into the way that companies make decisions about chemicals? Because the last thing we want is companies going from the, the frying pan to the fire when they eliminate a chemical concern. Because they are under a lot of market and regulatory pressures to get rid of chemicals of concern. I'll give you an example. When BPA was under fire in, in bottles, I, I spoke with one company that we work with. And I said, well, you know, you got rid of BPA. So what'd you switch to? I don't care. It's not BPA. It was probably BPS, right? Or right. another similar kind of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'd like to talk 
about yeah. that yeah. because that's kind of the prime example of yeah. substituting one bad thing for another. And it's actually structurally based. So BPA for the listener is bisphenol A. I think many people have heard of it, but not everybody. Found in a lot of polycarbonate water bottles. And it's a plasticizer that gives the too brittle plastic more flexibility so that it doesn't break. It doesn't shatter when you drop it and beat it up in the bottom of a canoe or whatever. So it's got a structure that is flexible and it tends to make the polymer more flexible. And so they substituted it. Actually, just part of it is BPS, bisphenol. The bisphenol part is the same. And the phenol group is an aromatic ring. We've talked about that before with a OH group on it. And then in between the two phenols is a dimethyl carbon. And that's sort of the part that gives it the flexibility. Well, they replaced it with BPS, which is a sulfur dioxide. And it has virtually the same chemical and physical properties. Why would you expect it to be any less toxic? It still mimics the estrogen and has endocrine effects. And it's a drop-in replacement. That's why they did it. So, you know, there's a problem. Drop-in replacements are convenient, but they are not necessarily safe or helpful. So the, the reason that they would do something like that is also related to that regulatory environment that companies are operating in, right? If the environment is that the EPA bans a specific chemical, or the public that purchases chemical products hears one name of a chemical. And usually, I guess they hear one name of a chemical because it has been put on a list by a scientific agency. And that's kind of the way that things go in America, it seems, is that a chemical gets put on a list and then people hear that that's a bad chemical and then it becomes a marketing factor to, to slap on your bottle that it's BPA-free, which is technically true even though it contains something that is chemically almost the same thing, but it has a slightly different name. It's got a different, you know, chemical identifier number. And therefore, so if you could wave a magic wand and change something about how all of that happens, at what point in the, in the pipeline would, would you do something maybe from the regulatory end? Yeah. I mean, you would want to make sure as you were issuing a restriction on the chemical concern that one, you looked at the class, two, that you required some evaluation of alternatives. Because the easiest thing to do is find a drop-in substitute, right? The last thing the manufacturer wants to do is go re-engineer their manufacturing process or their product. So the extent they can drop something in that works just as well. We've seen this in the solvents case, right? You swap out methylene chloride, you go to NPV, right? Because in the end, what what are they using? NPP. But but we've seen these kinds of um, jumps from one chemical term to another, right? And that's where you know, because it's the easiest thing. And propyl bromide, of course. So that's a replacement for methylene chloride, which turns out to be a more potent carcinogen and a neurotoxicant. Significant it causes peripheral neuropathy. So so that's a, a regrettable substitution. And part of it was we pushed for 
methylene chloride bands without thinking about what was coming in their place. You know, it's a, it's a really another one of these cases where, for example, when OSHA went to regulate methylene chloride, they were challenged by the halogenated solvents industry based on the mechanism of action by which methylene chloride caused harm in rats. And they spent years and probably millions of dollars defending their risk assessment and their action. And those years could have been spent and millions of dollars spent finding a better alternative. So when they went and regulated methylene chloride, what did manufacturers do? They went to their suppliers, and the supplier said, hey, we've got this alternative solvent. It's not regulated by EPA or OSHA. Why don't you use it? And of course, it's a drop-in. So what do you do? You use it. So you really have to think about de developing policy that forces the thought about alternatives, at least a consideration of the alternatives and what you're trading off from one chemistry to another. So they tried to do that in California with benzene. You know, I date back to the days when chemists actually used to wash their hands in benzene. And the mechanics, auto mechanics in California, well, everywhere, were washing their hands in benzene. It's great solvent for grease. And benzene is a carcinogen. Mm -hmm. It's a known. Yeah. And in California, they started replacing it with a mixture of hexanes and acetone. Yeah. And it turns out that N-hexane, by an unknown mechanism, it was completely not understood that hexane had neurotoxicity. It's a neurotoxin. And so these guys were getting Parkinson-like symptoms really fast, and it was bad. And at UCSF, they tracked down the messenger system, yeah. the chemical reactions that caused hexane, N-hexane, to be a carcinogen, right. I mean, a neurotoxin. And so this leads me to my question about, we talked about this with refrigerants too. Mm -hmm. If it's something new that we don't know, we don't understand how it could be toxic. Yeah. That's hard. Yeah. So absolutely. how do you determine upfront yeah. That something's not going to have a bad effect. You know, with refrigerants, it was like, you know, we went from ammonia that had acute toxicity to CFC. Right. Yeah. And we had no idea that was going to destroy the ozone. It took years to figure that out. So, so these unanticipated effects, how do you do that? So I think what we have to do is we have to be able to build in our evolving knowledge into decisions. Even with the CFCs, there were some early warnings that we didn't heed. Um, there's a whole wonderful uh, report by the European Environment Agency, which is a government agency in Europe that evaluates environmental information, but it's called Late Lessons from Early Warnings. And they go back through these examples where we just messed up, whether it's asbestos or CFCs or whatever. And what did we know when? And could we have known earlier on about the problems before it was too late? And, you know, the good thing is our knowledge about what makes something dangerous has evolved a lot. We have very new tools to do high throughput evaluations at the genetic level. So we're learning a lot more. We need to figure out how to integrate that knowledge better to then link that more effectively to design, right? We're going to make mistakes. There's, you know, science evolves. So what we need is ways to continuously evaluate the science so that when we do have early warnings, we can act quickly. And and, and that has to do too with lock-in, right? If we're stuck with one technology and 
only one way to do stuff, then it becomes very hard to get out of it, right? But I think there's this this emerging field in chemistry of rational design. So um, Adelina Vokchova and Jakob Kostal at, at GW in the chemistry department have done a lot of writing about rational design, like how do we design, bring in that toxicology information and information about what makes a molecule toxic at the, the molecular level, bring that into future design. And that's exactly in our article, what Valspar did with their BPA alternatives. It's another bisphenol compound, but what they did was they isolated what about that compound made it an endocrine disruptor. They then designed out that endocrine disrupting part of the molecule. And then they had the leading top scientists and endocrine disrupting scientists look at it and poke holes in it and say, is it an endocrine disruptor? Tell us if it is. And they looked at it, they opened their science to the public and they found that it was safe. And it turns out it's a drop-in substitute. So you can actually do drop-ins if you thoughtfully look at the molecular design and all the time you can. But in this case, this was a success story of of re-engineering a molecule. Now you could look at the whole molecular process, like do you need to make dangerous bisphenols to get to this final bisphenol? That that I don't know, and it would be worth looking at because the end product looks like it's not an endocrine dis- disruptor, but to make it, do you actually have to make an endocrine disruptor? That's a bigger whole issue about the whole basis of our chemicals economy, but. The other issue though is like, benzene was a carcinogen, Hexanes is a neurotoxin. Sometimes you're looking at apples and oranges in terms of toxicity. So that's hard. Yeah. Well, that's what we try to do in alternatives assessment. There are tools for that hazard assessment part of the alternatives assessment where you can say, you know, those are decision rules. Like what are the most important endpoints that we worry about? Like carcinogenicity or neurotoxicity or reproductive toxicity or persistence and bioaccumulation. And then we try to avoid those versus something that uh, mildly acutely toxic, we're probably going to be willing to accept that because we could control that exposure, right? I mean, there's a whole set of factors in, we're not going to have, there's no truly green chemical, right? I mean, it just doesn't exist, but it's, you know, maybe water. Water, (laughs) oxygen. Yeah, well, there's a few, but, but I think we need to understand what we're trading off and be transparent about that. And for example, let's say n-hexane is only a, a neurotoxicant in dermal exposure, but it's you're not going to have dermal exposure, you might say, okay, it's good. It's fine to use it because we're not going to have that exposure. Um, so you need to, that's where that comparative exposure element comes in, that you might be willing to trade off a, an oral carcinogen for an oral neurotoxicant because it really, it's... It's actually inhalation, but yeah. yeah, well, yeah, inhalation. Well, true. Yeah. Makes me not want to think about all those columns I ran on the bench. Yeah. Probably. I won't think about it. I walked into uh, an undergraduate organic chemistry lab at my university a couple of years ago and saw they were using methylene chloride in their extractions. I was like, what the heck are you doing? We still do. 18-year-olds using a carcinogen and a neurotoxicant. Probably not a smart idea. Yeah. So I want to pull up a quote from from one of your papers. More study about chemical hazards is not what's needed now, but rather investment and greater collaboration with the supply chain. Um, and that's what we heard about in our 
last interview with Martin Wolf, the director of sustainability for Seventh Generation, that, that that's exactly, I, you know, I wanted to know, we must be in the presence of somebody who really knows the chemistry of all of these bio-based chemicals. And I want to pick his brain about that. And it turns out that, you know, Martin was not the expert on the bio-based chemicals that were in the seventh generation products. What, what seventh generation is about is they put money toward lobbying to have transparency about chemical products uh, so that they, you know, kind of raise the value of having bio-based products. And then they clearly communicate the values that their customers are looking for to the supply chain. And the supply chain is somewhere where, you know, palm oil is being produced or something like that. So, so how do you, in this new professional body and how do you build consensus There are differences of opinion about what makes a safer chemical or a sustainable chemical, right? And we're trying to actually engage a discussion now. Um, The the Green Chemistry and Commerce Council worked to get past the recently passed Sustainable Chemistry Research and Development Act, um, just passed on January 1st, part of the National Defense Authorization Act. And what that bill does is establishes a federal government-wide program to drive research and innovation and education around sustainable chemistry. And the first step of that law is to define sustainable chemistry. And I think we need to build a forward-looking and actionable definition and set of criteria, because in the end, you know, we don't want sustainable chemistry, green chemistry to be what we were doing yesterday. It's it's the vision. It's where we want to be. And, and that way we need to be clear about the direction we want to go. So seventh generation focuses on, you know, we need everything we do to be safe for seven generations, right? And then we can figure out, well, how do we get there? Yeah, you know, what needs to change for us to get there? And how do we work together? And the European Union is doing something similar. They just passed their chemical strategy for sustainability. And as part of that, and we were working with the European Commission on this, again, Europe had been very focused on getting rid of bad, right? We're going to get rid of the bad chemicals, but they hadn't really focused on driving good. And so we worked with the commission to build a better bridge between their regulatory priorities around getting rid of bad stuff and their innovation and research priorities about designing good stuff. And and the, the, the product is a program, the, a direction they're calling safe and sustainable by design. Again, they've got to define what that means. What does safe and sustainable by design mean in practice? And these are discussions that have to happen. And there's clearly going to be differing opinions on that. And we're trying to leverage the trust we've built with industry through our GC3 and with academics and government through our A4 and and advocates and nonprofits through the work we do at the university to really build a a forward-looking vision that says, this is where we'd like to go. And, you know, we understand we're going to be debating what has to happen today, but everything new should be done in this way what's out in the market is out in the market, we're going to have to determine, right, what do we do about that stuff? And that's a more controversial conversation than what should we be making in the future and how should we be making it? Right. I kind of wondered if the initiative you talked about from textile manufacturers from Nike and Levi Strauss at Screened Chemistry, I I wondered which you thought was more effective initiative coming from the private businesses side of things or 
you know, from the government. So, yeah, I mean, I had never heard of it before, but screened chemistry is a kind of certification, I guess, among textile manufacturers. Well, it's a, it's a tool that was developed by a consultancy called Cybera, and they developed an approach for apparel companies to evaluate their formulations for chemicals of concern and to say which ones don't have those chemicals and have ones that are of lower hazard. And so it's a rapid screening approach that a footwear and apparel brand, which has manufacturing operations around the world, can quickly evaluate what's going into the products they're selling. And, you know, remember that the reason all of these brands started working together was because Greenpeace started a campaign where they were measuring the effluent of textile factories in Asia and finding the stuff that we would have found in the textile mills of Lowell 100 years ago. Well, except for all the chemicals we developed in the last 50 years, but they were turning rivers colors in Asia. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't because of the benevolence of these companies that they did it. They were under pressure, they're brands, right? And you could see when they acted on sweatshop labor, right? This was key to them to respond to increasing consumer and advocacy demands for safer chemicals in their product. And one way they could do it is work together. So they formed an organization called the ZDHC. And as part of the ZDHC, the screened chemistry is an approach that the brands can evaluate their chemistries, their formulations, and then they can start choosing the safer options. So those tools do exist. And I think industry is going to move much faster than government because the the pressures are greater on industry right now. I mean, in the States, you know, what's driving industry and what led us to form the GC3 were increasing market pressures. It wasn't regulatory pressures. There are certainly state regulatory pressures, but it was the market pressures. There is a organization called Safer Chemicals Healthy Families, which has a project or an effort called Mind the Store, where they're evaluating retailers on a yearly basis on their chemicals management strategies, and they're grading them. So a lot of retailers are getting Fs, and now they want to do better. So we've been able to work through the GC3 with 13 major retailers. Now, those rate retailers, Walmart, Target, Best Buy, Home Depot, Amazon, they represent over a trillion dollars of purchasing power. Trillion dollars of purchasing power is going to move the marketplace for better chemistry faster than any government ever could. Now, the challenge of that is those companies want the safer chemicals and they want them at the same cost. Now, that doesn't work with the way the cost of actually designing new chemistry. So what the GC3 has been trying to do is leverage that push-pull of the marketplace to find compromise and then get C-suite level commitments to pull through the better chemistries and deal with the cost issues in the middle because we know there are cost issues. You know, why are these chemicals we're worried about the incumbent ones? Well, they work well, they're cost effective, and they're highly integrated into complex value chains. So until we fix that. Can you define (laughs) C-suite? Yeah, executives, the executives of a business, right? The people in the executive suite, the CEO, the CFO, the CTO. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. So my understanding of GC3 is that businesses pay a membership fee that is kind of scaled to their size. And my closest kind of analogy to, I guess, would be like an industry academic research consortium is, you know, the model that maybe I know about, which is that companies will pay a fee to be a part of a research group that is affiliated with, you know, academia. And then they get to come and they, and they hear presentations every so often on general interest research going on that's paid for by the general membership dues. 
and then you know there are more kind of patent specific you know one-on-one -on -one collaborations with companies do you guys do one-on-one -on -one collaborations or what's the model not really so so gc3 is less of a like an iucrc type thing in national science foundation industry university partnership but more like a business association actually the GC3 is spinning out of the university to become its own independent membership association, which allows us to bring policy advocacy more effectively under the GC3 so we can actually lobby for policies that drive innovation. And we've done that with an informal collaboration at this point with 10 companies. But what the GC3 does is convene companies facing similar challenges to have conversations in a safe and pre-competitive space. So one of our most successful efforts was an effort to drive safe and effective preservatives for consumer products. So we had two retailers and 11 brands come together and say, hey, we all need better preservatives. We have a shrinking palette of effective preservatives. Some are under regulatory pressure, some are under market pressure. We need better options. So we brought together those 13 companies created a set of criteria for safe and effective preservatives. What do we need for these product categories? We did an open innovation challenge with a company called Inocentive, which is an open innovation clearinghouse. We identified 47 molecules. Some of them were an academic developing in their laboratory. Some of them were early stage startups. Some of them were more advanced chemical companies. And we evaluated the, the, the companies that sponsored this effort evaluated the alternatives, and then they judged them and gave prize money. And what we're doing now is saying, okay, great, we've identified some solutions, but have they gotten to market? Have they grown? Not really. So the next stage of this is let's develop a strategy to address any barriers to basically de-risk commercialization and scale. So how do we get innovative molecules into the hands of the brands that then they can scale them and, and put them on the shelves of the retailers. Mm -hmm. How do you give out free samples of cool new chemicals? Uh, yeah, well, I don't know as free samples, but we need to get those solutions, the safe and effective preservatives into the products that get on the shelves of the retailers. And green chemistry is niche, right? I mean, you think about seventh generation and Martin's my, my friend, you know, they're, they're a small little part of Unilever's business, right? I heard this described as once by a, a chemist as breaking bad level chemistry, right? These are tiny little things, right? You know, Tide has pure clean. Pure clean is the green version of Tide, but it's the tiniest little portion of the Tide market. Um, Method is a tiny little part of SC Johnson's portfolio. So if we are going to get green chemistry at scale, we've got to figure out the barriers that stand in between, you know, niche, you know, products that have higher margins and getting it into the mainstream products. And we have not achieved that yet. Okay. So the European Union has REACH, and that is the regulatory framework for chemicals in Europe. And that's Europe-wide. And so someone in Europe who's working on alternatives assessment, maybe they're working like in a context that is continental size versus what you've been telling us about some of the most effective you know, implementations of solutions seem to be at a Massachusetts level. So I'm curious, and then there are the specific needs of a business before they decide to implement something. So where do you think the conversation is the most happening? Is it happening, is it most appropriate to try to work these things out 
at a very local level or a very kind of sector level or you know where did those nitty-gritty conversations yeah well i think they need to happen at multiple levels right so massachusetts what we're working on is really adoption and that's really important and the europeans have not focused on adoption and actually we've had conversations with a group of centers around europe and government agencies about setting up a network of Tory like centers around europe that can support adoption of better chemicals right the large multinational brands are probably going to be the space where you see the initial front runners right they're going to have their smaller niche brands that are greener they're going to be the alpha movers so yes certain sectors we're going to be faster moving consumer product sectors health and beauty because that's what people put on their bodies and they're they're worried about it so the consumer demand is greater consumers like with organic foods are willing to pay a price premium for greener products in those product categories um, you're going to see this probably to some degree in footwear and apparel because there's consumer and NGO campaign pressure on those sectors. The building product sector is another one just because there is, again, a pressure from the advocacy movement and government standards like LEED that are pushing it. So I think it's going to be a, a hybrid, but where we're going to see the greatest movement in products is probably stuff that is formulated products on retailer shelves, you know, construction and footwear and apparel and toys anything that touches kids. Yeah, I have one nephew and I want to get him wooden toys. I don't want, there's, I look around and there's just so much plastic involved with small children and <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. The challenge is huge and we have to fight off parts of it, right? I mean, you know, some of the greatest successes in green chemistry in the pharma sector, but those successes are also ones where there's a real good return on investment, right? If you're eliminating a ton of waste, and eliminating three steps in your synthesis process, you save a lot of money. Oh yeah, I mean, ibuprofen is the poster child for that. Yeah, and that's not always the case. So, you know, some of these things do result in more expensive products, which then, you know, you have to make a business case of either it works better or you have to buy less of it to achieve the functionality, something that, or you need to negotiate along the value chain to say, hey, because the problem is, the stuff that we're concerned about, the externalities, the cancer, the endocrine disrupting properties, the ecotoxicological properties, those aren't captured in the cost of the chemical. And we know those externalities are real. I mean, if you look at the cost of environmentally related disease, it's huge and no one's bearing the burden, right? Sometimes there's a loss that forces that to happen or a cleanup that's forced. I mean, we're seeing that with PFAS now, that the costs of cleanups are going to be huge and it's affecting the stock prices of the companies that make perfluorinated compounds. But that's a rare occurrence, right? Asbestos, right? Where you have this, that clear link between disease and a chemical. But most of the time we don't have that. Well, there is a case study that I have in my book that actually paid off when this Defense Reauthorization Act came out, and that was in flame suppressants. There's a company that manufactures, it's a really simple mixture of water, a surfactant, and polysaccharides, starch, cellulose, and it does a better job, cheaper than PFAS, flame suppressants. And it's just, it's a better 
product. And so apparently there were senators telling the Union of Concerned Scientists, well, we have to keep PFAS in there. We can't ban it entirely because there's no replacement for fire extinguishers. You know, I told him about this. I, sh- I led him to the website. They took it to the senators who were objecting and they were like, oh, there is an alternative. It's out there. It's already on the market. And so part of it is education. Well, DOD is funding a ton of work on this. We actually have a project we're doing with DOD right now on incorporating alternatives assessment methods into the evaluation of alternatives to uh, fluorinated firefighting foams. Because the concern, again, is that you jump from the frying pan into the fire. So the military specification was the reason we were using fluorinated surfactants as firefighting foams because the mill spec said you got to use them, right? So, So there's some work now to modify the mill spec to move out of fluorinated firefighting foams, but we want to make sure that the alternatives don't lead to the next problem. So we're working with a number, I mean, DOD has funded like a hundred different groups to both develop new technologies, test new technologies, and then evaluate those technologies. I mean, it's really interesting. DOD gets it, right? They're having to clean up their mess and they've put a ton of money through their CERDIP and ED, ESDCP programs into safer alternatives because they know they don't want to have the next problem they have to clean up. It's actually Solberg Company. Yep, and they, Solberg. they won a Presidential Green Chemistry Challenge Award in 2014. They're one of the ones that's being evaluated right now by DOD. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really straightforward. I don't see how it can be a bad one. <laughs> It goes back to the performance requirements. And this is a conversation we're having because often we design performance requirements to meet the worst case scenario, right? Think about DWRs on clothing. We don't want our clothing to cause a failure when we're on the top of Mount Everest, right? I don't want my garments to fail on the top of Mount Everest. So, you know, perfluorinated membranes and coatings maybe be the best way to go. But when I'm riding my bike down the street, I don't need that level of protection, right? It's the same thing in fire suppression. For some fires, you might need higher performance. Some fires, lower performance. Well, we've set the bar that we'll set it at the highest performance for everything. And so we're working on a concept we're calling fit for purpose or sufficient performance to really build that more effectively. And we heard this in lead-free electronics, right? I mean, it was always, well, when you put it into outer space, you get tin whiskering. Well, how much lead material goes into outer space? And do we have to have lead for everything just because outer space travel is one that needs lead? So it's it's a complicated thing. But I think, you know, again, it comes back to this focus on can you design and evaluate a better alternative to meet that functional need? That's the bottom line. And, and we spend too much time either in chemistry of just making something because you know, we're making it to serve a functional need, but toxicity and health and safety may not be the relevant needs versus in health and safety, we're evaluating things and we don't think about what else could we be doing, right? So we need to be merging those more effectively. And that's what we were trying to do in our papers, really say these fields go really well together. You need them both. What was interesting was I was bifurcating the fields. I have a whole group working on alternatives assessment. I have a whole group working on green chemistry and they weren't even working together, which was really, for me, sort of silly. I was like, oh, you know, they're all part of a theory of change that you need to shift the science, you need to shift the markets, you need to shift the policy, and we need both of these tools to get there. Uh, it's systems thinking, that's what I, the, the big buzzwords now. Yeah. 
Yes, exactly. If a student were interested in going into alternatives assessment and wanted to major in chemistry or in the chemical sciences, what other courses would make up that ideal concentration in alternatives assessment? What, what is the toolbox kind of shaping up as? I think you'd want to have a class in toxicology or risk assessment, toxicology and risk assessment. You'd want to have a class in cleaner production or pollution prevention, environmental health sciences. Any of those would give you some of those skill sets. Beyond Benign, which is um, I'm on the board of, Amy Cannon's nonprofit is doing a whole set of curriculum around toxicology for chemists. So every chemistry student should be taking that curriculum. They should be understanding chemistry. They should be understanding policy. So what would be a good policy class, like an intro? Yeah, an intro to environmental policy would be great for a student, for a chemistry student to understand how what they make matters. I, I remember talking with students because I had, I, I was teaching when John Warner was at UMass Lowell, teaching two classes, one in cleaner production and one in clean product design. And I had green chemistry students as part of it. And they just were like, well, why do we need to know policy? And I was like, well, policy infuses everything, right? Education policy is policy. Research policy is policy. But you need to understand the laws and the perspectives because that will help you to think about, you know, your role as a scientist to affect change too. My mentor, Mary O'Brien, wrote a really wonderful article at one point called Being a Scientist Means Taking Side. And it's a beautiful article and I could send it to you. But what it says is as scientists, we have a unique skill set and we know stuff about things, right? About what makes things dangerous. And we should be applying that skill set to make the world better. I mean, I think about that in my own work. I am a state employee of Massachusetts. My job is to make the world better, right? To make the state better as a state employee. And I'm totally committed to that. So, you know, what was interesting for me when I was debating with our university lawyers about a project I had at one point, the only metric they had was you're not hiring students. I said, I'm trying to reduce cancer in Massachusetts. Isn't that a benefit to the Commonwealth? No, (laughs) it doesn't count. So... So I think, how do you channel that excitement of chemistry students to make the world better, to really become champions in academia or champions in a firm or champions in government? And that starts with training those students to really be thinking this way from the beginning. And they need to be good scientists. Science is at the core of this, but they need to understand how their science relates to the world and how their science has caused problems in the world too. I did a webinar on environmental justice with Beyond Benign because I wanted chemistry faculty and students to understand there are implications with how we make the stuff we use every day that negatively affect communities in the South. Any chemist has ever been to Mossville, Louisiana, and there's a wonderful uh, movie called Mossville, The Last Great Tree, which really talks about this community that's been decimated by petrochemical production. It was a freed slave community in Louisiana where people went to really build their own community and they ended up having their community decimated by petrochemical facilities. Well, I don't think most chemistry students get that. I hope most chemistry students know that there was a Bhopal disaster because if they don't know that, then that's really sad. So I think I removed this line from my textbook at one time I had written that chemistry is a political act. Yeah. <laughs> if you do good chemistry, that's good politics. And if you do bad chemistry, it's it's bad politics. I changed it 
to chemists have a, have serious responsibilities in our profession, whether a chemist or a company chooses to ignore the consequences of their chosen chemicals and methods, or to take great pains to produce the best products in the least polluting way that one can imagine, chemistry has consequences. Yeah, yeah, oh, that's really important. That's, I, I don't know if you had seen, that's my- I haven't, I'll have to, yeah, no, that's great. Because in the end, I think it is really important for students to have a big vision of where they can take chemistry. To understand the benefits of green chemistry, you got to understand the problem. Why are we even doing green chemistry? Because we designed chemistry for function cost and not for health and safety. It's not like there were some evil chemists who... Sometimes it was just happenstance, like... Right, happenstance too, right. Okay, the Diels-Alder reaction is easy to run. And so it turns out that chlorinated things undergo the Diels-Alder reaction really. And so we have this whole suite of pesticides that were really just a product an accidental chemical reaction looking for an application. Exactly. Well, that's true too. Um, that's very true. I mean, you think about much of our petrochemical use, it's like we have this stuff now, let's figure out what to make with it. Um, so no, it's good. But I think students do need to know what, what's gone wrong. Right? Not that we need to damn chemistry, right? We want more people in chemistry. We don't want to scare people away from chemistry. There's got to be a reckoning with what chemistry, you know, the past of chemistry to design the future of chemistry. Amen. Right. I think maybe if we can get the Association of Medical Colleges on board with testing green chemistry topics on the MCAT so that we can mandate that it gets into the introductory organic chemistry textbooks by golly, when I teach organic chemistry I, and I'm teaching something like an organolithium reaction, I say this is a good demonstration of what a carbon nucleophile is because lithium versus carbon, and this is going to be a nucleophile in this way. But here's all the bad things about it. And to couch it in terms of this is the chemistry that you are inheriting and that I must tell you because as though I'm telling you about your grandfather or something like that. <laughs> you know, this this is human organic chemistry at this point. But We're really stuck. Yeah, we're stuck with the chemistry we inherited. Yeah, and hopefully the future will be, you know, this nexus between biology and chemistry with synthetic biology. Uh, John Warner's now working with a company called Zymergen, which is a biology company. They do synthetic biology. So he's trying to figure out how do I take the stuff that yeast naturally makes and turn it into the chemistries of the future, right? And yeah. Yeah. I think there's some real fun opportunities, but again, it's going to take an interdisciplinary approach to chemistry. And you, know, you hope that the chemistry community gets a little less insular over time and they realize, oh, we need to be working with the biologists and the, the engineers and the public health people that can help us all solve problems. Well, they all need to take a microbiology. We'd throw that into the into our concentration, I'd say. Yeah, it's we got a long way to go. I mean, that's not the way we've set up our reward structures in academia. I've been trying for 20 years at my own university to figure out a way for us to work more effectively across the university to drive sustainable materials because we've got all the elements. They're just all siloed and it's uh, it's not easy. Yeah, so I'm working with the ACS Green Chemistry Institute with David Constable. And what we're trying to do is develop modules that can be put together 
in a general chemistry or an organic class that are green chemistry focused and toxicology is a part of each module and systems thinking is a part of each module. And so we're actually developing one on alcohols and having a lot of fun with that. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, I think we're gonna have great curriculum, great opportunities. I mean, I'd love to see public health and chemistry students studying together. That would be very cool. We're just applying now an NSF national research training grant on sustainable materials where we would have you know, this mixed group of students across campus in at least one or two classes together. I mean, it was always my vision that you pull together all these folks at the beginning, sort of get them going this the right direction. Then they go off and do their own specialization, public health, chemistry, biology, plastics, engineering, and then you bring them all back together to solve problems together. And maybe one day we'll get there. Yeah. I was hearing about a freshman research initiative that you Texas Austin, where just their framework for getting freshmen in a research context early on. And you could do something like that with public health and and chemistry students. You could kind of put it on top of the framework they already have. Well, we don't want to to hold you. It's, It's Super Bowl Sunday, everybody. So good luck to whatever is your team. I know we rambled over a lot of topics. I get it. We did. Yeah. Well, I'm happy to jump on anytime. We have a lot to do, but I think pulling together these fields and Turner's assessment green chemistry just makes all the sense in the world. When I was off chatting with some of my friends in the green chemistry community a couple of weeks ago, they're like, of course they go together. (laughs) It makes all the sense in the world. And I think we've got a lot of opportunity to grow this field or these fields over the coming years with all the concerns we have about climate change, about chemicals and health, about waste and circularity. Um, We need all the brains we can get to solve problems. And I'm excited about the opportunities. As I tell my students when we start the semester, I teach an introductory environmental health class, which is all about problems. And I say, well, at the end of each of these sections, we're going to talk about solutions because you got to have solutions because those give hope right? We need a little hope in this world that we can actually solve it. Give my Mary O'Brien quote again is, we put a person on the moon, right? If we can put a person on the moon, we can figure out a way to make chemicals, materials, and products that don't harm our health and environment, you know, period. Amen. It's been a broad conversation about green chemistry and where it interfaces with other parts of the real world where we want to integrated into, that is, businesses and regulations. And so Joel has been so kind as to walk us through what the Green Chemistry and Commerce Council is doing to try to put heads together in the same room. We've talked about alternatives assessment as a new framework for not just thinking about how to avoid the risks of the chemicals that are already embedded in our society, but how to assess real alternatives, real Uh, solutions to our problems that are not quite so harmful to ourselves and to the environment. So Joel, we thank you for being with us. And sorry if we rambled a little bit. So I'm going to say, think about it. Don't think too hard, but think about it. That's what we like to tell people here on Twist. I like it. I like it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Great work. Well, we'll say our goodbyes. (laughs) 